If you're in Ephesians chapter 2, go ahead and stand with me. We are going to conclude our series this evening entitled Bridge Builders and take a look at a passage from the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writing. We will read all of chapter 2, but I would encourage you after you're seated to keep your Bibles open. We're going to stay really close to this tonight and, and revisit some of these verses, really just follow what the Apostle Paul is developing here. So we'll begin reading in verse number 1. It says, and you, uh, let me give some context here. He's speaking to uh, Gentile believers primarily in Ephesus. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, and the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace." And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Move down to chapter number 4. We'll read just the first three verses here. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, 
forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray this evening. Father, I'm always thankful for the time to be together as a church family, for the encouragement it is, and just the opportunity we have to praise you, and then just fellowship with one another. I pray that you bless this time. Um, give us understanding of your word. Help me to be clear and just speak to our hearts um, about the unity you expect us to have. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for standing. You may be seated. It would have been probably about three days ago, I think it was Thursday, I was exiting this neighborhood across the street. And for those of you who don't know, Ashley and I just bought a house over there. So I was pulling out and I was going to take a right turn onto 129th and I was just coming to the church. So it's a right turn and almost immediately you would make a left hand into the church, the left hand turn into the church parking lot. First, first street here on this neighborhood across the street. So I was sitting there about to make a right hand turn and there's traffic coming in both directions. And unbeknownst to me, there's a truck that is about to pull out of the apartment complex um, that's right over here behind the church. He was going to make a left-hand turn. So we're going to be turning into the same direction here. He's a little further down, and um, I'm sitting there about to make a right-hand turn. So the traffic clears. It's, it's going in both directions, but it clears. Both, both lanes at the same time clears out, and we both make our respective turns. He turns into, and I'm assuming it's a he here because of how this goes, but he, <laughs> he makes a left-hand turn onto 129th into the left-hand lane. And I turn out, make a right into the right-hand lane, but because I'm turning into the church parking lot, there's no turn lanes out here. I just immediately come to the left and slow down to make my left-hand turn. This guy, though, is now behind me. And it made him very unhappy because I immediately hear his horn and he comes up on me really fast um, and it comes right up on me to the point that all I can see is his grill. His horn is blaring the whole time and then he slowly inches his way around me, staying as close as he possibly can to my vehicle all the way around, comes down my right side and then cuts in front of me, almost raking the front end of my car off, horn blaring the whole time, makes his way in front of me, then his engine growls as he peels out and goes ahead of me, horns blaring the whole time. Evidently, he didn't want me to make a left-hand turn. Um, I guess he thought I cut him off or something. And that's an experience probably we all could relate to. Um, road rage and a conflict in many forms and fashions. Why does the human race, broadly speaking, struggle so much with unity? What causes conflict? What causes anger? What causes hostility and fighting? What causes relational angst and drama? Why don't people get along? We can all relate, right? Uh, in, in all areas and walks of life, we can relate. I suppose there could be many possible answers to the question, and I may be guilty of being a little too reductive in mine, but I think the answer to all of those questions could be summed up this way. We find ourselves on opposite sides of a divide. We find ourselves on opposite sides of a barrier. We're simply different. We're different in so many ways. We have differences in opinion, differences in perspective, differences in ambition and goals, differences in desire, differences in perceptions of justice or the lack thereof, 
differences in status or position, differences in race, differences in tribe or group, just differences. Differences often pose a barrier to relationship. In the case of the man out here who was honking at me, we had a difference in opinion about what lane I should be in and which way I should be turning and whether or not I should have stopped and let him go around. There were differences. We've been talking about bridge building as analogous to relationships for about four weeks now. And a bridge obviously connects two otherwise distant, disconnected sides. In building bridges, it is the bringing together of two different sides that is the entire point. A bridge is used to span the divide between two points and bring together what otherwise would be completely disconnected and unrelated. A couple months ago, I had the opportunity to go to Chicago on a, uh, to go to a conference. I had never been before, and I loved the city. I've been to New York City um, a few years ago. I'd never been to Chicago, but it kind of, they, they say it had that Midwest feel, a big city with the Midwest feel, and I really identify with that. It, I'd never felt overwhelmed or unsafe. They're just a really neat place, but I didn't know before I had gone, that the city of Chicago, the downtown of Chicago, is completely divided in half between north and south by a river. It goes right down the middle of the city, and you see this sprawling, overwhelming, beautiful skyline, but it's cut in half by a river. It's a barrier. In the city, both sides are connected by a system of 32 bridges. And it's pretty remarkable. The infrastructure is remarkable. They were built 100 years ago. They're drawbridges. Uh, most of them still work. And you stand on one of these bridges and look out across the canal and you just see bridge after bridge after bridge after bridge after bridge, unifying what would have been an otherwise separated city. It, it makes it whole. It brings two sides together. Differences often pose a barrier to progress and relationship. They cause division that has to be bridged. Differences in opinion lead to arguments and relational angst. Just look at your marriage, right? Differences in perspective lead to a lack of understanding. Again, just look at your marriage. Uh, the husband is looking through a man's eyes, and what does the woman say? You just don't understand, right? It leads to... Uh, a lack of understanding. Differences in ambition and goals lead to misalignment. It's corporate work drama, right? Differences in perceptions of justice lead to anger and hostility. Just watch the news uh, or, or get on Facebook and listen to a mother rant about the playground bully or don't do that. Might not be a good idea. And differences in status or position lead to envy. Differences in tribe or group lead to prejudice. Um, just look at politics and governmental politics, church politics, school politics, work politics. Differences often cause division. They pose a barrier. And differences, astronomical differences between the Jews and Gentiles, pose the ultimate barrier between any kind of harmony between the two groups. Ephesians chapter 2, we just read it. Verses 11 and 12 says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh. So you're called uh, an outside group by the Jews. 
made by hands. Verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Jews and Gentiles, which Gentiles is just a word for non-Jews, were different in every way imaginable. They were obviously different races, and the Jews, to be quite honest, were very racist people. The Jews were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their ancestry was very important to them. They believed their race was superior and privileged above all others. Every Jew knew his family history, and his history had importance, uh, socioeconomic ramifications for the individual, including uh, the possession of certain plots of land and different roles within Israelite society. Being a descendant of Abraham meant they were chosen by God to bring about redemption to the world. However, in the Jewish mind, they took this to mean that Israel was preferred by God, while the Gentiles were disdained and chosen for damnation and suffering. As such, the Gentiles were literally hated by the Jews, and the Jews felt that they were right in doing the hating. Uh, this disgusting prejudice created animosity in the hearts of the Gentiles who saw the Jews as nothing more than pious, arrogant snobs, as you can imagine. They had very different cultures. Both were affected deeply by their religions. The Jews, of course, had a culture dominated by their religious laws and rituals, all the way down to things like their holidays and, and celebrations would have been determined by their religion. But at the same time, the Gentiles also practiced a lot of pagan rituals determined by their religious practices, many perverse to honor their pagan idols. The Jews and Gentiles were different religiously and spiritually. The Jews believed in Yahweh, even if their view of Him was warped. They believed in the one true God. The Gentiles were pagan idolaters and happy to be so, but as such, they had no access to God. Ugly or not, the Jewish religious system was the only way anyone in that day could have access to God, and the Gentiles were all but cut off by the Jews, which is not what God had intended. William Barclay describes the animosity, alienation, and hostility that existed between the Jew and Gentiles. And this is amazing. Just listen to this. The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that He had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need. For that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Can you imagine honestly thinking about another people group that way? This was the kind of animosity that existed between these people. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with the Gentile was the equivalent of death. So this extreme hostility is what Paul was referring to in verses 11 and 12. That's the context, that kind of hatred and animosity. Paul was writing to Gentiles primarily, and he said, Wherefore remember 
that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So you were, you were branded and despised by the Jews because of your physical lineage and differences. He says that at that time you were without Christ, you had no access to God, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They had no help of ever having a relationship with God because that relationship was attained through the Jewish religious system which the Jews had cut them off from. However, Paul said, remember what you were in time past. So something had changed. Uh, This was their plight in time past, but something was different. Christ intervened and changed in the most profound way both sides, Jew and Gentile. Verse number 1 of chapter 2 says, And you hath he quickened, who are dead in trespasses and sins. Keep in mind, Paul's writing to Christians here. He's speaking to a body of believers, and he says, You were spiritually dead in your violations of God's law and in your offenses against Him. You had no inclinations towards God. You were in rebellion against Him and had no way of pleasing Him. And that's our story, every single one of us before we were saved. Verse number 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Your identity and your place of belonging was part of Satan's kingdom before salvation. Your family, your tribe was in rebellion against God. Verse number three, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past. That's you and me, Paul, the Jews, the Gentiles, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. He's saying, in fact, not just you, Gentiles, but all of us, Jews included, once found ourselves living according to the passions and lust of our flesh, to the detriment of our eternal souls in relationship with God. We all made ourselves the children of wrath. But here, here comes perhaps the best coordinating conjunction in the entire Bible. It says, But God, who rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. God, who is full of mercy and love, even when we were in active rebellion against Him, and in active hatred of Him, made us alive through the life of Christ. He joined us to Christ, and we share Christ's life. And all of this was an act of His grace. It wasn't our doing. We were dead spiritually and could not make ourselves alive, but He took the initiative and made us alive. Verse number 6, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God has taken all of us, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, young and old, black and white, rich and poor, Smart and simple, pretty and ugly, right and wrong, oppressed and oppressor, privileged and disadvantaged, offender and offended. God has taken all of us together, universally, who are saved, and made us a place in heaven. We're all part of His kingdom. We all will live together in His city and in His presence. It's equal footing here. Verse number 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, 
not of works, lest any man should boast. All of this was an act of His grace. It's a gift from God. No part of it was because of works. No part of it was because of your merit. No part of it was because I deserved it. No part of it was because any one of us was superior in any way. No part of it was deserved. It was, it was not of works in any way because that would give us grounds for boasting. We have no grounds for boasting. We're all equal. We all, have the same pl- we all had the same plight. We all suffered the same fate. But God loved us all equally and joined us to the life of Christ by giving us life together in Him. So verse number 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, with God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now in verses 11 and 12, which we've already covered, Paul reminded them of the division and angst and hostility and violence that used to exist between Jew and Gentile. He, he asked, remember how different you used to be. Remember how alienated you used to be from one, or one another. Re- remember the hostility. Remember what that was like. But something had changed. Because of their shared faith in Christ, the believing Jews and believing Gentiles who had such extreme differences now shared the ultimate commonality. They had the most extreme commonality in common. They actually had more in common than their great differences. There there was a bigger issue here. Verse number 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You who used You used to be distanced and alienated, have been brought near in Christ. Verse number 14, for he is our peace who hath made us both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. The middle wall of partition was a notable feature of the temple built in Jerusalem by Herod the Great. The temple building itself was constructed on an elevated platform and around it was the court of the priest. East of this was the court of Israel, and further east, the court of the women. And these three courts, for the priests, the laymen, and the laywomen of Israel respectively, were all on the same elevation as the temple itself. From this level, one descended five steps to a walled platform, and then on the other side of the wall, 14 more steps to another wall, beyond which was the outer court, or was called the court of the Gentiles. This was a spacious court running right around the temple, and it's, um, it, it was a spacious court running right around the temple and its inner courts. From, from any part of it, the Gentiles could look up. Remember, they're at a lower place. They could look up and see the temple, but were not allowed to approach it. They were cut off from it by that surrounding wall, which would have been about five feet thick, on which were displayed at intervals warning notices in Greek and Latin telling them, basically, not trespassers will be prosecuted, but trespassers will be executed. Okay, so this was the middle wall of partition that Paul's referring to. And this physical division in the temple, as well as the, the, just the general division of people into two groups, Jew and Gentile, had been transcended by a greater reality. Christ's body, or we might say the church. 
So there's this division in the temple, but there was something greater now that was no longer separating them, and it was Christ's body. This new reality or this new group, this new body, this new identity transcended all others. It it trumps them all. The, The reality that we are all part of Christ's body breaks down all our dividing barriers. It is, it is the ultimate commonality above all others. Verse number 15 says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the hostility, even the law of the commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both, bringing the two together unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. So Christ takes all kinds of people from all walks of life and makes them part of His body. It makes them part of His church, giving them life. He offers peace to them and makes peace where they, there was otherwise hostility. Verse number 18. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God, through the Spirit. So Paul's using so many words and a lot of analogies here to say the same thing. We're all part of the same body. We're all part of the same kingdom. We're all part of God's family. Here's the point. This new reality transcends all other differences. So let's look at the analogy of the body. My right leg and my left ear have very little in common. If you didn't know, They have very little in common. They don't look the same. They don't perform the same function. They don't feel the same. They're not even on the same side of my body. They're on opposite sides of my body. But they have the ultimate commonality in that they get life from the same source. My leg would die without my body. And same with my left ear. It would become um, rotting mush. But it derives life from my body, and I don't think my body has any, been anything other than, for the most part, unified. Okay? And I'm thought of as a whole, not in individual parts. Uh, that commonality of where they're deriving life is greater than all other differences. Uh, it, we're all supposed to be part of this whole, which is referred to here by Paul as Christ's body, or we'll call it the church. And what Paul is laboring so hard to say is, yes, I fully realize you have a great number of differences. And you just look around this room, and there's a lot of differences uh, across the board in every way. Uh, But he's saying, I I realize you have a great number of differences between you. And I fully realize uh, there even used to be hostility, as there was between the Jew and Gentiles, But you actually have the ultimate commonality, and that's Christ. You have the thing in common that trumps all other things that you do not have in common. To go back to the bridge analogy that we've been using through this series, uh, the ultimate bridge between two otherwise opposing sides and greatly divided sides is Jesus Christ. I'm going to take the 
the liberty to, to read a lengthy portion of commentary. And I'm going to try to read it in a lively fashion. But um, try to engage, because I just cannot say this any better than this man did. He says, it would be hard to exaggerate the grandeur of this vision that Paul's casting. The new society God has brought into being is nothing short of a new creation, a new human race whose characteristic is no longer alienation but reconciliation, no longer division and hostility but unity and peace. This new society God rules and loves and lives in. That is the vision. But when we turn from the ideal portrayed in Scripture to the concrete realities experienced in the church today, it is a very different and a very tragic story. For even in the church, there is often alienation, disunity, and discord. And Christians erect new barriers in the place of old, which Christ has demolished. Now racism, nationalism, or tribalism. Now personal animosities engendered by pride, prejudice, jealousy, and the unforgiving spirit. Now a divisive system of caste or class. And now a, denomina a denominationalism which turns churches into sects and contradicts the unity of Christ's church. These things are doubly offensive. First, they are an offense to Jesus Christ. How dare we build walls of partition in the one and only human community in which He has destroyed them? To deliberately perpetuate these barriers in the church and even to tolerate them without taking any active steps to overcome them in order to demonstrate the transcultural unity of God's new society is to set ourselves against the reconciling work of Christ and even to try to undo it. Okay, he's still going. I'm not done. What is offensive to Christ is offensive also, though, in a different way to the world. And this is sobering to me. It hinders the world from believing in Jesus. God intends His people to be a visual model of the gospel, to demonstrate before people's eyes the good news of reconciliation. But what is the good of gospel campaigns if they do not produce gospel churches? It is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus by His cross has abolished the old divisions and created a single new humanity of love, while at the same time we are contradicting our message by tolerating racial or social or other barriers within our church fellowship. I am not saying that a church must be perfect before it can preach the gospel, but I am saying that it cannot preach the gospel while acquiescing in its imperfections. Amen. He says we need to get the failures of the church on our conscience, to feel the offense to Christ and the world which these failures are, to weep over the credibility gap between the church's talk and the church's walk, to repent of our readiness to excuse and even condone our failures, and to determine to do something about it. I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it already is, a single new humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other, the evident dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Only then will the world believe in Christ as peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory do His name.
So how are we doing? Are we a model of human community in the church, in the home? Are we a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other? Is it obvious to the world that God's spirit is dwelling in and working in us? Can people see this unity in our church? Can they see it in our homes? Do they see it in our interactions with each other? Do they see it in the way we handle offenses? Do they see a willingness to suffer offense because of a greater commonality? How will the world come to know the Prince of Peace if his people cannot make peace with each other? How can we expect the world to believe us when we preach the preeminence of Christ when we're divided over lesser issues? So if, as Christians, we actually share the ultimate commonality, it would only make sense that it be reflected in our exceptional unity. And this was, in fact, Christ's idea first in John 13, 35. He said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Our unity is supposed to speak louder than our words. The peace within our community, both inside and outside these walls, both in meat space and cyberspace, online and offline, the peace within the community of Eastland Baptist Church, the peace within the community of your home, ought to preach louder than any gospel tract, any billboard off the highway, any yard sign, any Facebook ad, etc. This is Christ's idea. This is how all men will know by your unity. Paul challenged us in a similar fashion a little further down in chapter 4, and we read it. Chapter 4, verse number 1, says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. We all have a higher calling. We're citizens of God's kingdom. We're to be about His business in the world, not hindering it. It's a very high calling, and we ought to walk worthy of it. Verse number 2 says, "...with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love." So what does this unity look like? Well, it looks like subjecting the dividing issue that I want to make an issue of, that the thing that my flesh wants to be a big deal, subjecting it to this greater reality. He has made us a family. He has a mission, and I have no right to overthrow that. It's subjecting. That's why Paul said these words. He says, in lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. It's subjecting me to this greater reality. And that takes humility. It takes recognizing my place in the greater scheme of things. And that's why Paul said, with all lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearing. This unity looks like forgiving my brother for the offense I've suffered because Christ forgave me and my brother. We had the same plight. We're both objects of his forgiveness. So instead of telling another person about the offense, I let it go. It looks like recognizing my spouse as God's child, first and foremost, a part of God's family and a recipient of his love, just like I am. And it's letting go of my anger and frustration in light of this reality. It's choosing to keep my opinion to myself, even if I'm right. Keep it to myself because I don't want to be a stumbling block 
to another Christian who I'm supposed to be helping who may not share my views. Paul said in verse number three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He said keep, not create. Jesus created the unity. This was his idea. He brought all of these diverse people together as one group, his body. It's not something we're supposed to generate. He created it. And it's something we're supposed to maintain. Christ is the one who bridged the gap between us. He's the one who broke down barriers. What right do we have to build them back? We have no right to take offense. So the next time you find yourself in conflict with another believer, next time you find yourself divided from another believer, next time you find yourself at odds, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, is this difference greater than what we have in common? I'm not saying the offense is not real. I'm not saying the frustration is not real. I'm not saying the division is not real. All I'm asking is, is the division so great that Christ cannot bridge it? Is it really so great that what you have in common is not greater? Will you stand with me as we pray this evening?